If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I do invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. This morning we are continuing our series where we look for hope during trying times. Hope for living faithfully during those trying times. In fact, I had a conversation this week with a church member and we were just commenting with one another on just how applicable the book of 1 Peter is to today's culture and climate, to today's world that we live in. From a societal standpoint, we live in a time where it is not popular to be a Christian. And yet what this society needs more than anything else is Christ. That's where the power of this book comes from. And it's the beauty of 1 Peter. And in some ways, it is a simple message. It's not a new message for a new time. It is not something that the early church did not have. No, Peter tells us to look upon Christ as our source of hope and our source of strength. In Him, we must place our trust. And in Him, we must find our foundation. Dear Christian, I do not know the struggles that you face today the hardships that you've overcome this past week or what lies in the week ahead. But what I do know is this, and I can say this with certainty, Christ is an immovable foundation, a foundation within which we can trust and we can build our life. And so may we be built upon Christ today. This is Peter's encouragement for us. With that in mind, would you follow along with me as I read God's word And as we hear this encouraging truth together, I will be reading from 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll begin in verse 4 and read through verse 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And the grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. He has promised us in his word that it will do everything he has set out for it to accomplish today. Let us now go to him in prayer and ask that he fulfill his promise. Please pray with me. O Lord our God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you prick our hearts this morning that you would open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts, that we not simply hear your word, but that we may receive its truth, that it may change our lives, 
and the lives of those around us. That we may place Christ as the foundational stone in our lives. That we may be built up as a chosen people, a people set apart. We pray for the lost of this world that find Christ as a stumbling stone. We pray for them who trip upon him as they reject that which you laid out as precious and good. I thank you for this time and your word. And I give it to you now and ask your blessing upon it for your people's sake and for your glory. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. I would dare say that uh, most of us growing up learned a song, whether it was in children's church or Sunday school or vacation Bible school. It's a little song about a builder and his building and the location of that building. This, of course, being the story of the wise man who built his house upon the rock and the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. This being a part of Jesus' sermon in Matthew, um, often called the Sermon on the Mount, uh, covering 4 through 7. In Matthew seven twenty four, Jesus tells this parable. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. As the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon the house, it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears the words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. In this parable, Jesus equates wisdom and obedience to his word to building a house upon a firm foundation. When the storms come, they do not tear down the house, and they are great storms indeed. In fact, the house stands firm because of the foundation. However, those who are foolish ignore the words of the Lord, ignore God's teaching, and when the storms come, their house does not stand upright. It does not remain. And in fact, the, the, the parable ends with, and great was the fall. Dire consequences, major catastrophe stands for those who reject the word of the Lord. Well, Peter, in our passage this morning, is saying a, a very similar teaching. He is, he's, I believe he has in mind that parable of Jesus, and he is applying it in, in, in a little bit different way, but really in the same way. Peter is telling the church that Christ is the rock. Jesus said his word is the foundation. Peter is saying Christ is the foundation. And John confirms that for us in John 1. Christ is the word of God from the beginning, creator of all things and light of the world. So it makes sense in hearing Peter's words to actually read in Matthew 7, Jesus saying that he is that foundation, the one that we must build our house upon, or we will suffer a great fall. In fact, Peter will tell us that to reject Christ as that foundation will become a stumbling block, a stone of pain and offense and of difficulty. Because of this, this morning, I want us to 
consider this passage as a blueprint. I want us to see it as a map for building a house. The first task we must begin with in that house that we're building this morning is to see that Christ must be the foundational living stone. The first stone to be laid. The most important in the building of this house. It will hold us up or act as a marker of judgment by rejecting it. We find this in verses 4 through 8. And then secondly, as we consider this blueprint, as we look at this house we are building, I want us to see that we who are in Christ are being built up like Him, after His fashion, on top of Him as our foundation. Christ must be the foundation. He must be the cornerstone. And we too are being built up like Him into a spiritual house. And with that, all kinds of blessing. See that in the final two verses. So we'll look at this passage in, in two sections, considering this blueprint for how we are to be built, remembering that our goal is hope for living faithfully during trying times. And I would argue Peter does just that in this passage. Let's consider this by seeing that Christ is the foundational living stone. We do have to go backwards just for a moment um, to 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter does a, a fantastic job of laying the groundwork for the centrality of Christ. We've talked about it in several sermons to this point, but just a few reminders. In the very first words, Peter doesn't even get through the first sentence without Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He grounds his message he grounds his authority. He grounds everything that's going to follow in Jesus. He then goes on in verses 3 through 9 to speak to the joy and honor we owe to Christ as our Savior and as our Redeemer. In verses 10 through 12, he reminds us of the prophetic nature of the life of Christ and he ties his truth to the historical truths of the Old Testament. He, he shows us how what Christ has done and what Christ is promising has been promised. It is not a new message. It is a message long promised from the beginning. And then we really camped out in 13 to 21. And by seeing this section, we are reminded that our holiness and our pursuit of holiness is directly tied to the holiness of Christ himself Verse 16, it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so our hope of holy living, our pursuit of holiness, our who we are before God is all tied in Christ himself. And so Peter really has, has done a, a fantastic job of, of pointing us back again and again and again to Christ himself. And even last week, if you were with us, the beginning of chapter 2, you need Christ like a newborn needs milk. That alone is your source of nourishment, of strength, encouragement, and that's how it has to be for you, dear Christian. You have to long for Christ as the newborn longs for the milk that will give it and bring it life. And it is by laying this foundation of Christ and our need for Him and what He has done on our behalf that Peter now turns and says we must see Him as the foundational, the living stone 
In fact, he describes it this way. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now, calling someone a living stone may not seem like a very honoring description of Christ. We often don't glamorize rocks today. We don't make much of them. But I love, I love the Puritans. I, listen, Matthew Henry, does, does he's just wonderful with words. Listen to how he explains the beauty of this description. The apostle here gives us a description of Jesus as a living stone. And though to a capricious wit or an infidel, this description may seem rough and harsh as stones tend to be. Yet to the Jews who placed much of their religion in the magnificent temple and who understood the prophetical style which calls the Messiah a stone, see Isaiah 8.14 and 26.16, it would indeed appear very elegant and proper. You see, this would be an honoring title, thinking about the original audience and that the temple itself was crafted by artisans who carefully and with intentionality laid these stones hand by hand, brick by brick, stone by stone, choosing the right one for the right job in the right place. And so Christ is, is called a stone before us, and, and we should look at that and, and, and praise him for it. But even before we get to that, we need to make a note on, on what kind of stone he is. He's a living stone. And, and while that may be easy enough to understand, may we not forget the importance of it. Christ is not dead. The tomb did not hold him. He lives and he's currently in heaven, preparing a place for us and interceding on our behalf to the Father daily, praying for you, dear Christian. Paul sees the fact that Christ is alive as so central to his message and the message of the gospel. He tells the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15, 14, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It all hinges on Christ being a living stone. If there is no Christ, then there is no foundation. As Matthew Henry well put it, Peter attaches this idea of living to this idea of a stone. And, and think about in this time what that would have meant. Stones represent strength, resoluteness, surety. Reliability, beauty, significance. These and more would have, would have struck the Jewish mind to say that Christ is a living stone for us. He is our strength. He is resolute. He is sure and reliable and beautiful and significant. This stone, as Peter reminds us, though, was rejected by men. Many looked upon him. And saw him for what he was. Many did not. But either way they cast him out. They turned him away. Which is, which is heartbreaking. As you read through the gospels. The very stone they needed. The piece that was missing. The, the, the right piece. The angular piece that sets everything in order. That puts everything in its place. They looked at it and tossed it to the side. We don't need that. That's not that important. And you look at the house they built because of it. A house built upon sand. 
But to God, Christ is chosen and precious. He is important. Do we see him that way today? We must. We must. We must at all costs. And Peter is imploring us to do so. So much that, that even who we are is wrapped up in who Christ is. We, we see that by continuing in our text. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to come back to in a moment what it means to be built up into a spiritual house. But note two things here. You yourselves like living stones. We are after the mold of Christ. We Christians are being built up like living stones as he was a living stone. We follow in the pattern. We follow in his mold. And we do so to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, acceptable through Jesus Christ. Jesus provides for us access to the Father. He, in his priestly role, grants us the ability to offer sacrifices that are deemed good and accepted. This is a major change in our relationship. Before in our sin, we couldn't even approach God. We couldn't even enter the throne room. We had to have an emissary. We had to have someone on our behalf. And even then, the sacrifices made under the old covenant, the covenantal system, even those sacrifices were only sufficient for those specific sins. And that, if the sacrifice itself was right and the priest that offers it was right and everything came together at the, the, the precise way and the precise time. But in Christ, He is the, the true sacrifice. He grants us to offer true sacrifices unto God that are good and worthy. And what is the sacrifice that we offer? It's worship. We offer our worship as a sacrifice. What a reminder as we gather together on this Lord's day, as we come into his house, we sing and we pray and we confess and we fellowship, we observe the sacraments, we hear and respond to his word. All of this is a sacrifice to God. And that should weigh in our minds, that should weigh in our hearts as we come, reminding that of, of that Jewish family that, that the lamb slept with the children and it stayed in the house and it was protected at all costs lest one scratch fall upon it and it become unworthy and they have to start over. They took that much care of their, of their sacrifice, of their worship. They, they paid a, a price so heavy for the life of that sacrificial lamb. Are we doing the same with our worship? Are we doing the same with our songs? Are we doing the same with our prayers? Are we doing the same with our fellowship? We must weigh heavily, one, the price that has been paid, and two, what we offer. And I, and I pray that through the Spirit that it is a pleasing sacrifice to God. I pray, and, and from my vantage point, I will tell you it is great joy to hear us sing and pray and praise and fellowship and worship together. To, to me, it does appear... Like God will be accepting of it. But I don't know your heart. I can't speak for where your heart is today. And so we, we look at this model and it, it should encourage us, but it also, it must warn us. And Peter, Peter ties this back to the Old Testament. Peter ties this back to the Old Covenant and, and to the prophetic words of Isaiah 
Twice he quotes Isaiah, Isaiah 26, 16, and then Isaiah 8, 14 um, in that prophecy section with, a, with Psalm 118 shoved in the middle. He says this, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not, the stones the builders rejected have become the, the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. When Isaiah first prophesied these words, he was speaking judgment upon Jerusalem for falling in with the pleasures of the world, for half-hearted worship, for half-hearted sacrifices. They had become like the other nations, so much so that the cornerstone, that which was to be the crowning anchor to their faith and to their lives, has now become an object of stumbling. They cast to the side that which was most precious. And it now stands as an object in their way. The way buildings were built in these times, if, if you don't understand what he means, he, he's repeatedly used this idea of a cornerstone. This was the first piece. This was the, the first stone. This, this really oriented the building. And if you've ever built with something like bricks or wood or, or um, stone, have you... Alignment is everything. Uh, alignment is everything. As, as my father was a land surveyor, and he would tell me half a degree off here means miles off course down the road. You've got to get it with absolute precision. The same with building. If you are off at the start, you stand no chance at reaching your corner at the end. And then if that corner is off, you can rest assured that that corner will be off, and you can rest assured that that corner will be off, and the whole building will be askew. It can compromise the structural integrity. It can transform the building into something it wasn't intended to be. And so that's why, as Isaiah prophesied, and he prophesied judgment against Jerusalem. Jerusalem, I gave you the cornerstone. I gave you the right piece. I gave you the model. I gave you the mold. And you cast it to the side. Now look at your building. Look what you've done. Of course you're falling apart. Of course you're going into judgment. Of course you're going into captivity. And the worst part, it, 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 it brings to mind that they took it and they just tossed it. And, and stones are heavy. These are, big, these are big stones. And so think about it. In, the, in his mind, the, the way Isaiah has given this message in Peter, they keep looking for this stone and it's right there. It's just as far as they could throw it, which, you know, I, I would, um, I'll trust you as far as I can throw you. That analogy, you can look and go, oh, there it is. You could imagine in your head this, this wobbly building and then six feet from it, the stone that would set it right. And then they're over there tripping on it. They're walking through there in the dark and I'll oh, hit this stone, this useless rock, and they're kicking it. And it's like, what do you do in Jerusalem? What is wrong with you? It's right there. You've messed it up that badly. You've really missed it. <laughs> Be careful with that, though. And it's, it's, I, I go back to warning. Um, we are prone to the same thing. Um, we, are, we are so prone to, to casting the God and God's word to the side, going, I'll fix this, I've got this, I know the right answer, and um, I don't, we'll just put that over here for now, and then you build this little thing, and it's, it's all wrong, and you're like, what's going on? And the instructions are right there. And what, what am I doing? And that's usually when we turn to prayer, but that's another sermon. Um, start with prayer, start with the instructions, and the building goes so much smoother. 
Christ is the cornerstone. He is the foundational piece. He, he is where we must begin. And, and we are after that mold. If, if we continue in that path, in that plan, then we have a house that is strong and structural and worth being looked at. But it must begin with Christ. It, it absolutely must. He must be the foundation. Without it, we cannot build. And Peter has made that argument through chapter 1 and on into chapter 2. And so with that in mind, now that we have established that, the, the importance of Christ as the foundation, let's look at what we are building. Let's, let's look at what's supposed to go up. Let's, let's put a few more bricks on and realize that we are those bricks, that you are part of that plan. You are being built into a spiritual house on Christ. Would you look with me at our last two verses to see this? Peter, after the foundation, turns to the people. He looks to the church and explains to them who they are in Christ. He speaks to our identity and who God is working in us into. And he does it by giving us four descriptions. This is who you are, O oh church. This is who you are, dear Christian. Christ is your foundation. You are a chosen race royal priesthood, holy nation, and a people for his own possession. Let's take a moment and consider each of these descriptors, beautiful, beautiful reminders of who we are in Christ. And he says, we are the chosen race. This should and must immediately draw images of Israel. You have to, when you hear this, think of who Israel is and who Israel it was to be. Isaiah, he quotes the Lord in Isaiah 43, 20 and 21. The wild beast will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people who I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. My people, for me, says God, to praise me. That is who Peter is calling us chosen. Chosen people giving honor and praise to God. Chosen people who are made for God and for God's kingdom. Again, we, we look back to the previous section and we see who we are in Christ. We are blessed. We offer sacrifices acceptable through Christ. We will not be put to shame Peter here is describing the church, and what an honor. What an honor to be described in this way, O oh church. But he doesn't stop there. He continues, the church is a royal priesthood and a holy nation. This is a quotation um, and fulfillment of Exodus 19.6. Here, God is getting ready to deliver the Ten Commandments um, to Moses on behalf of the people. And Moses is receiving the instructions. God says, now say to them, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, who delivered you on wings like eagles and brought you to myself. Now indeed, if you will obey me, you shall be a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a treasured possession for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We belong to King Jesus. We are a part of his kingdom which is a holy kingdom. We're also priests, 
set-apart priest with the explicit instruction to worship God. Have you considered that today? Instead of needing a priest on your behalf to worship God for you, you today are called to and are granted the ability to worship God directly. Christ lays the foundation by himself being the priest, the high priest. It is because of him that we are honored in this way. Peter's already said it. If you look back to verse 5, you yourself like living stones, again, after the model of Christ, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And what does that mean? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You worship through Christ to God. Upon Christ's death, the temple curtain torn from top to bottom. There was a lot of spiritual significance in this moment that we now have direct access to the Father. You are a kingdom of royal priests. Then he concludes with the final description for the church. We are a people for God's own possession. The Baker exegetical commentary said it so well, I'll quote it for you. A people for God's possession is an allusion to Exodus 19.5 and Isaiah 43.20, where God refers to his holy nation in the context of the Exodus and later in the Babylonian exile, respectively, as a people out of all the peoples of the world that God claims for himself. God says to you today, dear Christian, you are mine. And there's no greater statement than that today. That you belong to the Lord. Even better, you were created, you were designed, you were fashioned by Him for Him. You were created for that purpose, to belong to God. Can we think of a higher calling today? Can we think of a more honorable goal for our lives? And the purpose of it, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaiming the glory of God. I pray we have done that today. Through the songs that we have sung, this is my father's world. It belongs to him. It is his even further, the opening hymn, the hymn of adoration, give to God our give to our God immortal praise. Why? Because he's worthy of it. He deserves it. And then in a moment, worship Christ, the risen King. What are we going to do after hearing this message? We're going to worship God. We're going to worship Christ because he's the King, the Lord of our lives. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our praise. You were saved for worship. You were called out of darkness into light so that the creator God might be even more worshipped and praised. He didn't need it. He didn't need it. But he is honored by it. And if we need a reason beyond that, if, if this was not enough, Peter caps it with this wonderful statement. Once you were not a people, just as a reminder, in case you don't know, dear church, this wasn't who you were, but now you are. Once you did not have mercy... But now you have mercy. You are to worship God because he has been merciful unto you. You are his people, though there was a time when you were not his people. I love the reminder, Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us 
in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for you when you were not his people. He died for you when you did not have mercy. He died for you so that you would have these things. And Peter is telling us today, dear church, be built up in this model. Be built up in this way, after his likeness, after his path. It would be important for us this morning to ask ourselves, how does this affect me today? What is this message how does this change my life and, and the direction of our church and the direction of who we are in this world? How did this help a church facing trials and persecution in Asia Minor? Well, let me answer that by just asking a few questions. Is there a greater trial than the trial that Jesus faced? Is there anything more intense, more demanding, and more important than what he went through? Your foundation has been tested by the greatest test that could be conceived. And it passed. The foundation remained firm. It was not cracked. It was not chipped away. It did not shake. It did not move. Christ suffered the full wrath of God for sinners like you and me. He paid the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And he took it. Now that's the foundation. If that's the foundation of the house, then what can this world do to us that's not already been tried? What can the world do? The storms of this world, the winds and the seas, the rains, what can it do against the house of God? Now they may be intense, and I am by no way am belittling the trials that you face today. Please don't hear me say that. They may be intense and they may be great and they may feel like they will collapse the house, but I can assure you it will not. For ultimately we are His. We are of His kingdom. We are His people. And one day, whether He comes back first or we join Him through death, we will be made whole. We will be united to Him once and for all. Why? Because we are Christians like Christ, made after His image, following the model of the cornerstone being built up into a royal priesthood, a heavenly kingdom, a holy people for his glory and worship. Why do I know that? Because I know what the Bible says about heaven. What's heaven going to be like? It's going to be a place of worship. How do you get there to a place of worship? You've got to have people worshiping. Who are those people going to be? You and me who trust in him by faith today. And because of that, the world can't do anything to us. For our foundation is sure. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it often appears that the days are growing darker. It often seems that the, the world is winning. As people who know the truth, who know your word and, 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 and trust in it, oh Lord, would you help us to have a bigger mindset. It is so easy to, to get overwhelmed with the day-to-day. -day. With trials, though they may diff be difficult, they are only temporary. What more can they do to us than take our lives? And even then, immediately, we will be in the Savior's arms. Father, I pray for your church. May we rest firmly upon Christ as our foundation. 
And may we be built up after his image in light of what he's done, trusting him by faith. And may we stand. May we stand for truth. May we be a beacon of hope. May others look to us and come and seek refuge. May others cling to the truth that is taught here. May we stand on this truth. I I pray for Christ the Redeemer Church. I pray that 100, 200, 500 years from now, if you will it, that it would continue to be a beacon of truth. Because the foundation, Christ, is still the cornerstone. Do not let us reject you, O Lord. Do not let us toss you to the side. In our own lives and in the life of this church, may we stand for you. We ask this, O Lord, make it so in Christ's name. Amen.